of leisure. Book one. Why do they, with great unanimity, recommend vices to us, even though we attempt nothing else that would do us good? Yet retirement in itself will be beneficial to us. We shall be better men when taken singly, and if so, what an advantage it would be to retire into the society of the best of men, and to choose some example by which we may guide our lives. This cannot be done without leisure. With leisure, we can carry out that which we have once for all decided to be best. When there is no one to interfere with us, and with the help of the mob, pervert our as yet feeble judgment. With leisure only can life, which we distract by aiming at the most incompatible objects, flow on in a single gentle stream. Indeed, the worst of our various ills is that we change our very vices. And so we have not even the advantage of dealing with a well-known form of evil. We take pleasure first in one and then in another, and are, besides, troubled by the fact that our opinions are not only wrong but lightly formed. We toss, as it were, on waves and clutch at one thing after another. We let go what we just now sought for and strive to recover what we have just let go. We oscillate between desire and remorse, for we depend entirely upon the opinions of others, and it is that which many people praise and seek after, not after, not that which deserves to be praised and sought after, which we consider to be best. Nor do we take any heed of whether our road be good or bad in itself, but we value it by the number of footprints upon it, among which there are none of any who have returned. You will say to me, Seneca, what are you doing? Do you desert your party? I am sure that our Stoic philosophers say we must be in motion up to the very end of our life. We will never cease to labor for the general good, to help individual people, and when stricken in years to afford assistance even to our enemies. We are the sect that gives no discharge for any number of years' service, and in the words of the most eloquent of poets, we wear the helmet when our locks are gray. We are they who are so far from indulging in any leisure until we die, that if circumstances permit it, we do not allow ourselves to be at leisure, even when we are dying. Why do you preach the maximums of Epicurus in the very headquarters of Zeno? Nay, if you are ashamed of your party, why do you not go openly altogether over to the enemy rather than betray your own side? I will answer this question straightway. What more can you wish than I should imitate my leaders? What then follows? I shall go whither they lead me, not whither they send me. Two. Now I will prove to you that I am not deserting the tenets of the Stoics. 
for they themselves have not deserted them, and yet I should be able to plead a very good excuse, even if I did follow not their precepts, but their examples. I shall divide what I am about to say into two parts. First, that a man may, from the very beginning of his life, give himself up entirely to the contemplation of truth. Secondly, that a man, when he has already completed his term of service, has the best of rights, that of his shattered health, to do this, and that he may then apply his mind to other studies after the manner of the Vestal Virgins, who allot different duties to different years. First learn how to perform the sacred rites, and when they have learned them, teach others. 3. I will show that this is approved of by the Stoics also. Not that I have laid any commandment upon myself to do nothing contrary to the teaching of Zeno and Chrysippus, but because the matter itself allows me to follow the precepts of those men. For if one always follows the precepts of one man, one ceases to be a debater and becomes a partisan. Would that all things were already known, that truth were unveiled and recognized, and that none of our doctrines required modification. But as it is, we have to seek for truth in the company of the very men who teach it. The two sects of Epicureans and Stoics differ widely in most respects, and on this point among the rest, nevertheless, each of them consigns us to leisure, although by a different road. Epicurus says, The wise man will not take part in politics, except upon some special occasion. Zeno says, The wise man will take part in politics, unless prevented by some special circumstance. The one makes it his aim in life to seek for leisure, the other seeks it only when he has reasons for doing so. But this word reasons has a wide signification. If the state is so rotten as to be past helping, if evil has entire dominion over it, the wise man will not labor in vain or waste his strength in unprofitable efforts. Should he be deficient in influence or bodily strength, if the state refuse to submit to his guidance, if his health stand in the way, then he will not attempt a journey for which he is unfit, just as he would not put to sea in a worn-out ship, or enlist in the army if he were an invalid. Consequently, one who has not yet suffered, either in health or fortune, has the right, before encountering any storms, to establish himself in safety, and thenceforth, thenceforth, to devote himself to honorably industry and to violate leisure and the service of those virtues which can be practiced even by those who pass the quietest of lives. The duty of a man is to be useful to his fellow men, if possible to be useful to many of them, failing this, to be useful to a few, failing this, to be useful to his neighbors and failing them to himself. For when he helps others, 
He advances the general interests of mankind. Just as he who makes himself a worse man does harm not only to himself, but to all those to whom he may have done good if he had made himself a better one, so he who deserves well of himself does good to others by the very fact that he is preparing what will be of service of them. Four. Let us grasp the fact that there are two republics, one vast and truly public, which contains alike gods and men, in which we do not take account of this or that nook of land, but make the boundaries of our state reach as far as the rays of the sun, and another to which we have been assigned by the accident of birth. This may be that of the Athenians or Carthaginians, or of any other city which does not belong to all men, but to some especial ones. Some men serve both of these states, the greater and the lesser, and at the same time, some serve only the lesser, some only the greater. We can serve the greater commonwealth even when we are at leisure, Indeed, I am not sure that we cannot serve it better when we are at leisure to inquire into what virtue is and whether it be one or many, whether it be nature or art that makes men good, whether that which contains the earth and sea and all that in them is be one, or whether God has placed therein many bodies of the same species. Whether that out of which all things are made be continuous and solid, or containing interstices and alternate empty and full spaces. Whether God idly looks on at his handiwork or directs its course. Whether he is without and around the world, or whether he pervades its entire surface whether the world be immortal or doomed to decay, and belonging to the class of things which are born only for a time. What service does he who meditates upon these questions render to God? He prevents these, his great works having no one to witness them. 5. We have a habit of saying that the greatest good is to live according to nature, Now nature has produced us for both purposes, for contemplation and for action. Let us now prove what we said before. Nay, who will not think this proved if he bethinks himself how great a passion he has for discovering the unknown? How vehemently his curiosity is roused by every kind of romantic tale. Some men make long voyages and undergo the toils of journeying to distant lands for no reward, except that of discovering something hidden and remote. This is what draws people to public shows, and causes them to pry into everything that is closed, to puzzle out everything that is secret, to clear up points of antiquity, and to listen to tales of the customs of savage nations. Nature has bestowed upon us an inquiring disposition, and being well aware of her own skill and beauty, has produced us to be spectators of her vast works. 
because she would lose all the fruits of her labor if she were to exhibit such vast and noble works of complex construction, so bright and beautiful in so many ways, to solitude alone. That you may be sure she wishes to be gazed upon, not merely looked at. See what a place she has assigned to us. She has placed us in the middle of herself, and given us a prospect all around. She has not only set man erect upon his feet, but also with a view to making it easy for him to watch the heavens. She has raised his head on high and connected it with a pliant neck, in order that he might follow the course of the stars from their rising to their setting, and move his face round with the whole heaven. Moreover, by carrying six constellations across the sky by day and six by night, she displays every part of herself in such a manner that by what she brings before man's eyes, she renders him eager to see the rest also. For we have not beheld all things, nor yet the true extent of them, but our eyesight does but open to itself the right path for research and lay the foundation from which our speculations may pass from what is obvious to what is well no less known and find out something more ancient than the world itself from whence those stars came forth. Inquire what was the condition of the universe before each of its elements were separated from the general mass. On what principle its confused and blended parts were divided? Who assigned their places to things, whether it was by their own nature, that was, that what was heavy sunk downwards, and what was light flew upwards? Or whether besides the stress and weight of bodies, some higher power gave laws to each of them? Whether that greatest proof that the spirit of man is divine be true? The theory, namely, that some parts, and as it were, sparks of the stars have fallen down upon earth and stuck there in a foreign substance. Our thought bursts through the battlements of heaven and is not satisfied with knowing only what is shown to us. I investigate, it says, that which lies without the world, whether it be a bottomless abyss or whether it is also confined within boundaries of its own. What the appearance of the things outside may be, whether they be shapeless and vague, extending equally in every direction, or whether they also are arranged in a certain kind of order. Whether they are connected with this world of ours, or are widely separated from it, and welter about in empty space whether they consist of distinct atoms, of which everything that is and that is to be is made, or whether their substance is uninterrupted and all of it capable of change, whether the elements are naturally opposed to one another, or whether they are not at variance, but work towards the same end by different means. Since man was born for such spe speculations as these, Consider how short a time he has been given for them, even supposing that he makes good his claims to the whole of it, 
allows no part of it to be wrested from him through good nature or to slip away from him through carelessness. Though he watches over all his hours with most miserly care, though he lived to the extreme confines of human existence, and though misfortune took nothing away from what nature for the comprehension of immortality. Even then man is too mortal for the comprehension of immortality. I live according to nature, therefore, if I give up myself entirely to her. And if I admire and reverence her, nature, however, intended me to do both, to practice both contemplation and action. And I do both, because even contemplation is not devoid of action. Six. But, say you, it makes difference whether you adopt the contemplative life for the sake of your own pleasure, demanding nothing from it save unbroken contemplation without any result. For such a life is a sweet one and has attractions of its own. To this I answer you. It makes just as much difference in what spirit you lead the life of a public man, whether you are never at rest and never set apart, any time during which you may turn those eyes away from the things of the earth to those of heaven. It is by no means desirable that one should merely strive to accumulate property without any love of virtue, or to do nothing but hard work without any cultivation of the intellect. For these things ought to be combined and blended together, and similarly, virtue placed in leisure without action is but an incomplete and feeble good thing, because she never displays what she has learned. Who can deny that she ought to test her progress in actual work, and not merely think what ought to be done, but also sometimes use her hands as well as her head, and bring her conceptions into actual being? But if the wise man be quite willing to act thus, If it be the things to be done, not the man to do them that are wanting, will you not then allow him to live to himself? What is the wise man's purpose in devoting himself to leisure? He knows that in leisure, as well as in action, he will accomplish something by which he will be of service to posterity. Our school, at any rate, declares that Zeno and Chrysippus have done greater things than they would have done had they been in command of armies, or filled high offices, or passed laws, which latter indeed they did pass, though not for one single state, but for the whole human race. How then can it be unbecoming to a good man to enjoy a leisure such as this, by whose means he gives laws to ages to come and addresses himself not to a few persons, but to all men of all nations, both now and hereafter. To sum up the matter, I ask you whether Cleanthes, Chrysippus, and Zeno lived in accordance to their doctrine. 
I'm sure that you will answer that they have lived in the manner in which they taught that men ought to live, yet no one of them governed the state. They had not, you reply, the amount of property or social position, which as a rule enables people to take part in public affairs. Yet for all they... For all that they did, for all that, (laughs) they did not live an idle life. They found the means of making their retirement more useful to mankind than the perspirings and runnings to and fro of other men. Wherefore, these persons are thought to have done great things, in spite of their having done nothing of a public character. 7. Moreover, there are three kinds of life, and it is a stock question which of the three is best. The first is devoted to pleasure, the second to contemplation, the third to action. First, let us lay aside all disputatiousness and bitterness of feeling, which, as we have stated, causes those whose paths in life are different to hate one another beyond all hope of reconciliation. And let us see whether all these three do not come to the same thing, although under different names. For neither he who decides for pleasure is without contemplation, nor is he who gives himself up to contemplation without pleasure, nor yet is he whose life is devoted to action without contemplation. It makes you say all the difference in the world whether a thing is one's main object in life, or whether it be merely an appendage to some other object. I admit that the difference is considerable. Nevertheless, the one does not exist apart from the other. The one man cannot live in contemplation without action, nor can the other act without contemplation, and even the third, of whom we all agree in having a bad opinion, does not approve of passive pleasure, but of that which he establishes for himself by means of reason. Even this pleasure-seeking sect itself, therefore, practices action also. Of course it does, since Epicurus himself says that at times he would abandon pleasure and actually seek for pain, if he became likely to be surfeited with pleasure or if he thought that by enduring a slight pain, he might avoid a greater one. With what purpose do I state this? To prove that all men are fond of contemplation. Some make it the object of their lives. To us, it is an anchorage, not a harbor. 8. Add to this that, according to the doctrine of Chrysippus, a man may live at leisure. I do not say that he ought to endure leisure, but that he ought to choose it. Our Stoics say that the wise man would not take part in the government of any state. What difference does it make by what path the wise man arrives at leisure, whether it be because the state is wanting to him or he is wanting to the state. If the state is to be wanting to all wise men, and always will be found wanting by refined thinkers, I ask you, 
To what state should the wise man betake himself? To that of the Athenians, in which Socrates is condemned to death, and from which Aristotle goes into exile, lest he should be condemned to death. Where virtues are borne down by jealousy. You will tell me that no wise man would join such a state. Shall then the wise man go to the commonwealth of the Carthaginians, where faction never ceases to rage, and liberty is the foe of all the best men, where justice and goodness are held of no account, where enemies are treated with inhuman cruelty, and natives are treated like enemies. He will flee from this state also. If I were to discuss each one separately, I should not be able to find one which the wise man could endure, or which could endure the wise man. Now if such a state as we have dreamed of cannot be found on earth, it follows that leisure is necessary for everyone, because the one thing which might be preferred to leisure is nowhere to be found. If anyone says that to sail is the best of things, and then says we ought not to sail in a sea in which shipwrecks were common occurrences, and where sudden storms often arise, which drive the pilot back from his course, I should imagine that this man, while speaking in praise of sailing, was really forbidding me to unmoor my ship. De brevitate vitae. On the shortness of life. The majority of mortals, Paulinus, complain bitterly of the spitefulness of nature, because we are born for a brief span of life, because even the space that has been granted to us rushes by so speedily and so swiftly that all save a very few find life at an end just when they are getting ready to live. Nor is it merely the common herd and the unthinking crowd that bemoan what is, as men deem it, an universal ill. The same feeling has called forth complaint also from men who were famous. It was this that made the greatest of physicians exclaim that life is short, art is long. It was this that led Aristotle, while expostulating with nature, to enter an indictment most unbecoming to a wise man, that, in point of age, she has shown such favor to animals that they drag out five or ten lifetimes, but that a much shorter limit is fixed for man, though he is born for so many and such great achievements. It is not that we have a short space of time, but that we waste much of it. Life is long enough, and it has been given in sufficiently generous measure to allow the accomplishment of the very greatest of things, if the whole of it is well invested. But when it is squandered in luxury and carelessness, when it is devoted to no good end, forced at last by the ultimate necessity, we perceive that it has passed away before we were aware that it was passing. So it is. The life we receive is not short, but we make it so. Nor do we have any lack of it, but are wasteful of it. Just as great and princely wealth is scattered in a moment when it comes into the hands of a bad owner, while wealth, however limited, 
if it is entrusted to a guardian, increases by use, so our life is amply long for him who orders it properly. Why do we complain of nature? She has shown herself kindly. Life, if you know how to use it, is long. But one man is possessed by an avarice that is insatiable, another by a toilsome devotion to tasks that are useless. One man is besotted with wine, another is paralyzed by sloth. One man is exhausted by an ambition that always hangs upon the decision of others. Another, driven on by the greed of the traitor, is led over all lands and all seas by the hope of gain. Some are tormented by a passion for war and are always either bent on inflicting danger upon others or concerned about their own. Some there are who are worn out by voluntary servitude in a thankless attendance upon the great. Many are kept busy either in the pursuit of other men's fortune or in complaining of their own. Many, following no fixed aim, shifting and inconstant and dissatisfied, are plunged by their fickleness into plans that are ever new. Some have no fixed principle by which to direct their course, but fate takes them unawares while they loll and yawn. So surely does it happen that I cannot doubt the truth of that utterance, which the greatest of poets delivered with all the seeming of an oracle. The part of life we really live is small. For all the rest of existence is not life, but merely time. Vices beset us and surround us on every side, and they do not permit us to rise anew and lift our, up our eyes for the discernment of truth, but they keep us down when once they have overwhelmed us and we are chained to lust. Their victims are never allowed to return their, to their true selves. If ever they chance to find some release, like the waters of the deep sea, which continue to heave even after the storm is past, they are tossed about, and no rest from their lusts abides. Think you that I am speaking of the wretches whose evils are admitted? Look at those whose prosperity men flock to behold. They are smothered by their blessings. To how many are riches a burden? From how many do eloquence and the daily straining to display their powers draw forth blood? How many are pale from constant pleasures? To how many does the throng of clients that crowd about them leave no freedom? In short, run through the list of all these men from the lowest to the highest. This man desires an advocate. This one answers the call. That one is on trial. That one defends him. That one gives sentence. No one asserts his claim to himself. Everyone is wasted for the sake of another. Ask about the men whose names are known by heart, and you will see that these are the marks that distinguish them. A cultivates B, and B cultivates C. No one is his own master. And then certain men show the most senseless indignation they complain of the insolence of their superiors, because they were too busy to see them when they wished an audience. But can anyone have the hardihood to complain of the pride of another when he himself has no time to attend to himself? After all, no matter who you are, 
The great man does sometimes look toward you, even if his face is insolent. He does sometimes condescend to listen to your words. He permits you to appear at his side. But you never deign to look upon yourself, to give ear to yourself. There is no reason, therefore, to count anyone in debt for such services, seeing that, when you performed them, you had no wish for another's company, but could not endure your own. Though all the brilliant intellects of the ages were to concentrate upon this one theme, never could they adequately express their wonder at this dense darkness of the human mind. Men do not suffer anyone to seize their estates, and they rush to stones and arms if there is even the slightest dispute about the limit of their lands. Yet they allow others to trespass upon their life. Nay, they themselves even lead in those who will eventually possess it. No one is to be found who is willing to distribute his money, yet among how many does each one of us distribute his life? In guarding their fortune, men are often close-fisted, yet when it comes to the matter of wasting time, in the case of the one thing in which it is right to be miserly, they show themselves most prodigal. And so I should like to lay hold upon someone from the company of older men and say, I see that you have reached the farthest limit of human life. You are pressing hard upon your hundredth year, or are even beyond it. Come now, recall your life and make a reckoning. Consider how much of your time was taken up with a money lender, how much with a mistress, how much with a patron, how much with a client, how much in wrangling with your wife. How much in punishing your slaves? How much in rushing about the city on social duties? Add the diseases which we have caused by our own acts. Add to the time that has lain idle and unused. You will see that you have fewer years to your credit than you count. Look back in memory and consider when you have ever had a fixed plan. How few days have passed as you had intended. When you were ever at your own disposal when your face ever wore its natural expression, when your mind was ever unperturbed, what work you have achieved in so long a life, how many have robbed you of life when you were not aware of what you were losing, how much was taken up in useless sorrow, in foolish joy, in greedy desire, in the allurements of society, how little of yourself was left to you, you will perceive that you are dying before your season. What, then, is the reason of this? You live as if you were destined to live forever. No thought of your frailty ever enters your head, of how much time has already gone by you take no heed. You squander time as if you drew from a full and abundant supply, though all the while that day which you bestow on some person or thing is perhaps your last. You have all the fears of mortals and all the desires of immortals. You shall hear many men saying, After my fiftieth year I shall retire into leisure. My sixtieth year shall release me from public duties. And what guarantee, pray, have you that your life will last longer? Who will suffer your course to be just as you plan it? 
Are you not ashamed to reserve for yourself only the remnant of life, and to set apart for wisdom only that time which cannot be devoted to any business? How late is it to begin to live just when we must cease to live? What foolish forgetfulness of mortality to postpone wholesome plans to the fiftieth and sixtieth year, and to intend to begin life at a point to which so few have attained. You will see that the most powerful and highly placed men let drop remarks in which they long for leisure, acclaim it, and prefer it to all their blessings. They desire at times, if it could be with safety, to descend from their high pinnacle, for though nothing from without should assail or shatter, fortune of its very self comes crashing down. The deified Augustus, to whom the gods vouchsafed more than to any other man, did not cease to pray for rest and to seek release from public affairs. All his conversation ever reverted to the subject, his hope of leisure. This was the sweet, even if vain, consolation with which he would gladden his labors, that he would one day live for himself. In a letter addressed to the Senate, in which he had promised that his rest would not be devoid of dignity, nor inconsistent with his former glory, I find these words. But these matters can be shown better by deeds than by promises. Nevertheless, since the joyful reality is still far distant, my desire for that time most earnestly prayed for has led me to forestall some of its delight by the pleasure of words. So desirable a thing did leisure seem that he anticipated it in thought because he could not attain it in reality. He who saw everything depending on himself alone, who determined the fortune of individuals and of nations, thought most happily of that future day on which he should lay aside his greatness. He had discovered how much sweat those blessings that shone throughout all lands drew forth, how many secret worries they concealed. Forced to pit arms first against his countrymen, then against his colleagues, and lastly against his relatives, he shed blood on land and sea. Through Macedonia, Sicily, Egypt, Syria, and Asia, and almost all countries, he followed the path of battle, and when his troops were weary of shedding Roman blood, he turned them to foreign wars. While he was pacifying in the Alpine regions and subduing the enemies planted in the midst of a peaceful empire, while he was extending its bounds even beyond the Rhine and the Euphrates and the Danube, in Rome itself the swords of Morena, Capeo, Lepidus, Ignatius, and others were being wetted to slay him. Not yet had he escaped their plots when his daughter and all the noble youths who were bound to her by adultery, as by a sacred oath, oft alarmed his failing years. And there was Paulus, and a second time the need to fear a woman in league with an Antony. When he had cut away these ulcers together with the limbs themselves, others would grow in their place. Just as in a body that was overburdened with blood, there was always a rupture somewhere. And so he longed for leisure, 
in the hope and thought of which he found relief for his labors. This was the prayer of one who was able to answer the prayers of mankind. Marcus Cicero, long flung among men like Catiline and Clodius and Pompey and Crassus, some open enemies, others doubtful friends, as he is tossed to and fro along with the state and seeks to keep it from destruction, to be at last swept away, unable as he was to be restful in prosperity or patient in adversity. How many times does he curse that very consulship of his, which he had lauded without end, though not without reason. How tearful the words he uses in a letter written to Atticus when Pompey the Elder had been conquered and the sun was still trying to restore his shattered arms in Spain. Do you ask, he said, what I am doing here? I am lingering in my Tusculan villa, half a prisoner. He then proceeds to other statements in which he bewails his former life and complains of the present and despairs of the future. Cicero said that he was half a prisoner, but in very truth, never will the wise man resort to so lowly a term. Never will he be half a prisoner. He who always possesses an undiminished and stable liberty, being free in his own master and tower, towering over all others. For what can possibly be above him who is above fortune? When Livius Drusus, a bold and energetic man, had, with the support of a large crowd, drawn from all Italy proposed new laws and the evil measures of the Gracchi, seeing no way out for his policy, which he could neither carry through nor abandon when once started on, he is said to have complained bitterly against the life of unrest he had had from the cradle, and to have exclaimed that he was the only person who had never had a holiday, even as a boy. For while he was still a ward and dressing the dress of a boy, he had the courage to commend to the favor of a jury who were accused, and to make his influence felt in the law courts, so powerfully indeed, that it is very well known that in certain trials he forced a favorable verdict. To what lengths was not such a premature ambition destined to go? One might have known that such precocious hardihood would result in great personal and public misfortune, and so it was too late for him to complain that he had never had a holiday when from boyhood he had been a troublemaker and a nuisance in the forum. And it is a question whether he died by his own hand or he fell from a sudden wound received in his groin, some doubting whether his death was voluntary, no one whether it was timely. It would be superfluous to mention more who, though others deemed them the happiest men, have expressed their loathing for every act of their years, and with their own lips have given true testimony against themselves. But by these complaints they changed neither themselves nor others, for when they have vented their feelings in words, they fall back into their usual round. 
Heaven knows, such lives as yours, though they should pass the limit of a thousand years, will shrink into the merest span. Your vices will swallow up any amount of time. The space you have, which reason can prolong, although it naturally hurries away of necessity, escapes from you quickly. For you do not seize it. You neither hold it back nor impose delay upon the swiftest thing in the world, but you allow it to slip away as if it were something superfluous and that could be replaced. But among the worst I count also those who have time for nothing but wine and lust, for none have more shameful engrossments. The others, even if they are possessed by the empty dream of glory, nevertheless go astray in a seemly manner. Though you should cite to, the, cite to me the men who are avaricious, the men who are wrathful, whether busied with unjust hatreds or unjust wars, these all sin in more manly fashion. But those who are plunged into the pleasures of the belly and into lust bear a stain that is dishonorable. Search into the hours of all these people. See how much time they give to accounts. How much to laying snares, how much to fearing them, how much to paying court, how much to being courted, how much is taken in giving or receiving bail, how much by banquets. For even these now have become a matter of business, and you will see how their interests, whether you call them evil or good, do not allow them time to breathe. Finally, everyone agrees that no one pursuit can be successfully followed by a man who is busied with many things. Eloquence cannot, nor the liberal studies, since the mind, when its interests are divided, takes in nothing very deeply, but rejects everything that is, as it were, crammed into it. There is nothing the busy man is less busied with than living. There is nothing that is harder to learn. Of the other arts, there are many teachers everywhere. Some of them we have seen that mere boys have mastered so thoroughly that they could even play the master. It takes the whole of life to learn how to live, and, what will perhaps make you wonder more, it takes the whole of life to learn how to die. Many very great men, having laid aside all their encumbrances, having renounced riches, business, and pleasures, have made it their one aim, up to the very end of life, to know how to live. Yet the greater number of them have departed from life, confessing that they did not yet know. Still less do those others know. Believe me, it takes a great man, and one who has risen far above human weaknesses, not to allow any of his time to be filched from him. And it follows that the life of such a man is very long, because he has devoted wholly to himself whatever time he has had. None of it lay neglected and idle. None of it was under the control of another. For guarding it most grudgingly, he found nothing was worthy to be taken in exchange for his time. And so that man had time enough. But those who have been robbed of much of their life by the public have necessarily had too little of it.
and there is no reason for you to suppose that these people are not sometimes aware of their loss. Indeed, you will hear many of those who are burdened by great prosperity cry out at times in their midst of their throngs of clients, or their pleadings in court, or their other glorious miseries. I have no chance to live. Of course you have no chance. All those who summon you to themselves turn you away from your own self. Of how many days has that defendant robbed you? Of how many that candidate? Of how many that old woman wearied with burying her heirs? Of how many that man is shamming sickness for the purpose of exciting the greed of the legacy hunters? Of how many that very powerful friend who has you and your like on the list, not of his friends, but on his retinue? Check off, I say, and review the days of your life. You will see that very few, and those the refuse, have been left for you. That man who had prayed for the fascists, when he attains them, desires to lay them aside, and says over and over, When will this year be over? That man gives games, and after setting great value on gaining the chance to give them, now says, When shall I be rid of them? That advocate is lionized throughout the whole forum and fills all the plays of the great crowd that stretches farther than he can be heard. Yet he says, when will vacation time come? Everyone hurries his life on and suffers from a yearning for the future and a weariness of the present. But he who bestows all of his time on his own needs who plans out every day as if it were his last, neither longs for nor fears the morrow. For what new pleasure is there that any hour can now bring? They are all known, all have been enjoyed to the full. Mistress Fortune may deal out the rest as she likes. His life has already found safety. Something may be added to it, but nothing taken from it and he will take any addition as the man who is satisfied and filled takes the food which he does not desire and yet can hold. And so there is no reason for you to think that any man who has lived long because he has gray hairs or wrinkles, he has not lived long, he's existed long. For what if you should think that man has had a long voyage who had been caught by a fierce storm as soon as he left harbor, and swept hither and thither by a succession of winds that raged from different quarters, had been driven in a circle around the same course. Not much voyaging did he have, but much tossing about. I am often filled with wonder when I see some men demanding the time of others, and those from whom they ask it most indulgent. Both of them fix their eyes on the object of the request for time, neither of them on the time itself. Just as if what is asked were nothing, what is given, nothing. Men trifle with the most precious thing in the world, but they are blind to it because it is an incorporeal thing, because it does not come beneath the sight of the eyes. And for this reason, it is counted a very cheap thing, nay, of almost no value at all. 
Men set a very great store by pensions and doles, and for these they hire out their labor or service or effort. But no one sets a value on time. All use it lavishly as if it cost nothing. But see how those same people clasp the knees of physicians if they fall ill and the danger of death draws near. See how ready they are, if threatened with capital punishment, to spend all their possessions in order to live. So great is the inconsistency of their feelings. But if each one could have the number of his future years set before him as is possible in the case of the years that have passed, how alarmed would those be who saw only a few remaining? How sparing of them would they be? And yet it is easy to dispense an amount that is assured, no matter how small it may be, but that must be guarded more carefully, which will fail you, know not when. Yet there is no reason for you to suppose that these people do not know how precious a thing time is. For to those whom they love most devotedly, they have a habit of saying that they are ready to give them a part of their own years. And they do give it without realizing it, but the result of their giving is that they themselves suffer loss without adding to the years of their dear ones. But the very thing they do not know is whether they are suffering loss. Therefore, the removal of something that is lost without being noticed, they find, is bearable. Yet no one will bring back the years. No one will bestow you once more on yourself. Life will follow the path it started upon, and will neither reverse nor check its course. It will make no noise. It will not remind you of its swiftness. Silent, it will glide on. It will not prolong itself. At the command of a king, or at the applause of a populace. Just as it was started on its first day, so it will run. Nowhere will it turn aside, nowhere will it delay. And yet, what will be the result? You have been engrossed. Life hastens by, while death will be at hand, for which, willy nilly, you must find leisure. Can anything be sillier than the point of view of certain people? I mean those who boast of their foresight. They keep themselves very busily engaged in order that they may be able to live better. They spend life in making ready to live. They form their purposes with a view to the distant future. Yet postponement is the greatest waste of life. It deprives them of each day as it comes it snatches from them the present by promising something hereafter. The greatest hindrance to living is expectancy, which depends on the morrow and wastes today. You dispose of that which lies in the hands of fortune. You let go that which lies in your own. Whither do you look? At what goal do you aim? All things that are still to come Lie in uncertainty, live straightway. See how the greatest of bards cries out, and, as if inspired with divine utterance, sings the saving strain. The fairest day in hapless mortal's life 
is ever first to flee. Why do you delay, says he, why are you idle? Unless you seize the day, it flees. Even though you seize it, it will still flee. Therefore, you must view with time's swiftness and the speed of using it. And, as from a torrent that rushes by and will not always flow, you must drink quickly. And two, the utterance of the bard is most admirably worded to cast censure upon, upon infinite delay, in that he says, not the fairest age, but the fairest day. Why, to whatever length your greed inclines, do you stretch before yourself months and years in long array, unconcerned and slow through time, though time flies so fast? The poet speaks to you about the day, and about this very day that is flying. Is there, then, any doubt that for hapless mortals, that is, for men who are engrossed, the fairest day is ever the first to flee? Old age surprises them while their minds are still childish, and they come to it unprepared and unarmed, for they have made no provision for it. They have stumbled upon it suddenly and unexpectedly. They did not notice that it was drawing nearer day by day. Even as conversation or reading or deep meditation on some subject beguiles the traveler, and he finds that he has reached the end of his journey before he was aware that he was approaching it, just so with this unceasing and most swift journey of life, which we make at the same pace, whether waking or sleeping, those who are engrossed become aware of it only at the end. In a word, do you want to know how they do not live long? See how eager they are to live long. Decrepit old men beg in their prayers for the addition of a few more years. They pretend that they are younger than they are. They comfort themselves with a falsehood and are as pleased to deceive themselves as if they deceived fate at the same time. But when at last some infirmity has reminded them of their mortality, in what terror do they die, feeling that they are being dragged out of life, and not merely leaving it? They cry out that they have been fools, because they have not really lived, and that they will live henceforth in leisure, if only they escape from this illness. Then at last they reflect how uselessly they have striven, for things which they did not enjoy, and how all their toil has gone for nothing. But for those whose life is passed remote from all business, why should it not be ample? None of it is assigned to another. None of it is scattered in this direction and that. None of it is committed to fortune. None of it perishes from neglect. None is subtracted by wasteful giving. None of it is unused. The whole of it, so to speak, yields income. And so, however small the amount of it, it is abundantly sufficient, and therefore, whenever his last day shall come, the wise man will not hesitate to go to meet death with steady step. Perhaps you ask whom I would call the engrossed, 
There is no reason for you to suppose that I mean only those whom the dogs that have at length been led in drive out from the law court. Those whom you see either gloriously crushed in their own crowd of followers or scornfully in someone else's. Those whom social duties call forth from their own homes to bump them against someone else's doors, or whom the praetor's hammer keeps busy in seeking gain that is disreputable and that will one day fester. Even the leisure of some men is engrossed in their villa or on their couch in the midst of solitude. Although they have withdrawn from all others, they are themselves the source of their own worry. We should say that these are living, not in leisure, but in busy idleness. Would you say that the man is at leisure who arranges with finical care his Corinthian bronzes, that the mania of a few makes costly and spends the greater part of each day upon rusty bits of copper? Who sits in a public wrestling place? For to our shame, we labor with vices that are not even Roman, watching the wrangling of lads. Who sorts out the herds of his pack mules into pairs of the same age and color? Who feeds all the newest athletes? Tell me, would you say that those men are at leisure who pass many hours at the barber's while they are being stripped of whatever grew out the night before? While a solemn debate is held over each separate hair, while either disarranged locks are restored to their place, or thinning ones drawn from this side and that toward the forehead. How angry they get if the barber has been a bit too careless, just as if he were shearing a real man. How they flare up if any of their mane is lopped off, if any of it lies out of order, if it does not all fall into its proper ringlets. Who of these would not rather have the state disordered than his hair? Who is not more concerned to have his head trim rather than safe? Who would not rather be well-barbered than upright? Would you say that these are at leisure who are occupied with the comb and the mirror? And what of those who are engaged in composing, hearing, and learning songs while they twist the voice? whose best and simplest movement nature designed to be straightforward into the meanderings of some indolent tune, who are always snapping their fingers as they beat time to some song they have in their head, who are overheard humming a tune when they have been summoned to serious, often even melancholy manners, matters. These have not leisure but idle occupation. And their banquets, heaven knows, I cannot reckon among their unoccupied hours, since I see how anxiously they set out their silver plate, how diligently they tie up the tunics of their pretty slave boys, how breathlessly they watch to see in what style the wild boar issues from the hands of the cook, with what speed at a given signal smooth-faced boys hurry to perform their duties, with what skills the birds are carved into portions, all according to rule. 
How carefully, unhappy little lads, wipe out the spittle of drunkards. By such means, they seek the reputation of being fastidious and elegant, and to such an extent do their evils follow them into all the privacies of life that they can neither eat nor drink without ostentation. And I would not count these among the leisured class either. The men who have themselves borne hither and thither in a sedan chair and a litter, and are punctual at the hours for their rides, as if it were unlawful to omit them, who are reminded by someone else when they must bathe, when they must swim, when they must dine, so enfeebled are they by the excessive lassitude of a pampered mind that they cannot find out by themselves whether they are hungry. I hear that one of these pampered people, provided that you can call it pampering to unlearn the habits of human life, when he has been lifted by hands from the bath and placed in his sedan chair, said questioningly, Am I now seated? Do you think that this man, who does not know whether he is sitting, knows whether he is alive, whether he sees, whether he is at leisure? I find it hard to say whether I pity him more if he really did not know or if he pretended not to know this. They really are subject to forgetfulness of many things, but they also pretend forgetfulness of many. Some vices delight them as being proofs of their prosperity. It seems the part of a man who is very lowly and despicable to know what he is doing. After this, imagine that the mimes fabricate many things to make a mock of luxury. In very truth, they pass over more than they invent, and such a multitude of unbelievable vices has come forth in this age, so clever in this one direction, that by now we can charge the mimes with neglect. To think that there is anyone who is so lost in luxury that he takes another's word as to whether he is sitting down. This man, then, is not at leisure, you must apply to him a different term. He is sick, nay, he is dead. That man is at leisure who has also a perception of his leisure. But this other who is half alive, who in order that he may know the postures of his own body, needs someone to tell him. How can he be the master of any of his time? It would be tedious to mention all the different men who have spent the whole of their life over chess or ball or the practice of baking their bodies in the sun. They are not unoccupied whose pleasures are made a busy occupation. For instance, no one will have any doubt that those are laborious triflers who spend their time on useless literary problems, of whom even among the Romans there is now a great number. It was once a foible confined to the Greeks to inquire into what number of rowers Ulysses had, whether the Iliad or the Odyssey was written first, whether, moreover, they belonged to the same author, and various other matters of the stamp, 
which, if you keep them to yourself, in no way pleasure your secret soul, and, if you publish them, make you seem more of a bore than a scholar. But now this vain passion for learning useless things has assailed the Romans also. In the last few days, I heard someone telling who was the first Roman general to do this or that. Duilius was the first who won a naval battle. Curius Dentatus was the first who had elephants led in his triumph. Still, these matters, even if they add nothing to real glory, are nevertheless concerned with signal services to the state. There will be no profit in such knowledge. Nevertheless, it wins our attention by reason of the attractiveness of an empty subject. We may excuse also those who inquire into this, who first induced the Romans to go on board ship. It was Claudius, and this was the very reason he was surnamed Caudex, because among the ancients a structure formed by joining together several boards was called a caudex, whence also the tables of the law are called codices, and, in the ancient fashion, boats that carry provisions up to the Tiber are even today called codicariae. Doubtless this, too, may have some point. The fact that Valerius Corvinus was the first to conquer Messano and was the first of the family of the Valerii to bear the surname Messana because he had transferred the name of the conquered city to himself and was later called Messala after the gradual corruption of the name in the popular speech. Perhaps you will permit someone to be interested also in this. The fact that Lucius Sulla was the first to exhibit loosed lions in the circus though at other times they were exhibited in chains, and that javelin throwers were sent by King Brocus to dispatch them. And doubtless this too may find some excuse, but does it serve any useful purpose to know that Pompey was the first to exhibit the slaughter of 18 elephants in the circus, pitting criminals against them in a mimic battle? He, a leader of the state, and one who, according to report, was conspicuous among the leaders, of old for the kindness of his heart, thought it a notable kind of spectacle to kill human beings after a new fashion. Do they fight to the death? That is not enough. Are they torn to pieces? That is not enough. Let them be crushed by animals of monstrous bulk. Better would it be that these things pass into oblivion, lest hereafter some all-powerful man should learn them and be jealous of an act that was no wise human. Oh, what blindness does great prosperity cast upon our minds! When he was casting so many troops of wretched human beings to wild beasts born under a different sky, when he was proclaiming war between creatures so ill-matched, when he was shedding so much blood before the eyes of the Roman people, who itself was soon to be forced to shed more. He then believed that he was beyond the power of nature. 
But later the same man, betrayed by Alexandrine treachery, offered himself to the dagger of the vilest slave, who then at least discovered what an empty boast his surname was. But to return to the point from which I have digressed, and to show that some people bestow useless pains upon these same matters, the man I mentioned related that Metellus, when he triumphed after his victory over the Carthaginians in Sicily, was the only one of all the Romans who had caused a hundred and twenty captured elephants to be led before his car, that Sulla was the last of the Romans who extended the pomerium, which in old times it was customary to extend after the acquisition of Italian, but never of provincial territory. Is it more profitable to know this than that Mount Aventine, according to him, is outside the Pomerium for one of these reasons. Either because that was the place to which the plebeians had succeeded, or because the birds had not been favorable when Remus took his auspices on that spot. And, in turn, countless other reports that are either crammed with falsehood or are of the same sort. For though you grant that they tell these things in good faith, Though they pledge themselves for the truth of what they write, still whose mistakes who will be made fewer, whose mistakes will be made fewer by such stories? Whose passions will they restrain? Whom will they make more brave? Whom more just? Whom more noble-minded? My friend Fabianus used to say that at times he was doubtful whether it was not better to apply oneself to any studies than to, became, to become entangled in these. Of all men, they alone are at leisure who take time for philosophy. They alone really live. For they are not content to be good guardians of their own lifetime only. They annex every age to their own. All the years that have gone before them are in addition to their store. Unless we are most ungrateful, all those men, glorious fashioners of holy thoughts, were born for us. For us, they have prepared a way of life. By other men's labors, we are led to the sight of things most beautiful that have been wrested from darkness and brought into light. From no age are we shut out. We have access to all ages, and if it is our wish, by greatness of mind, to pass beyond the narrow limits of human weakness, there is a great stretch of time through which we may roam. We may argue with Socrates, we may doubt with Carneades, find peace with Epicurus, overcome human nature with the Stoics, exceed it with the cynics. Since, since nature allows us to enter into fellowship with every age, why should we not turn from this paltry and fleeting span of time and surrender ourselves with all our soul to the past, which is boundless, which is eternal, which we share with our betters? Those who rush about in the performance of social duties who give themselves and others no rest, 
when they have fully indulged their madness, when they have every day crossed everybody's threshold and have left no open door unvisited, when they have carried around their venial greeting to houses that are very far apart, out of a city so huge and torn by such varied desires, how few will they be able to see? How many will there be who, either from sleep or self-indulgence or rudeness, will keep them out? How many who, when they have tortured them with long waiting, will rush by, pretending to be in a hurry? How many will avoid passing out through a hall that is crowded with clients, and will make their escape through some concealed door as if it were not more discourteous to deceive than to exclude? How many, still half asleep and sluggish from last night's debauch, scarcely lifting their lips in the midst of a most insolent yawn, manage to bestow on yonder poor wretches who break their own slumber in order to wait on that of another? The right name only after it has been whispered to them a thousand times. But we may fairly say that they alone are engaged in the true duties of life, who shall wish to have Zeno, Pythagoras, Pythagoras, Democritus, and all the other high priests of liberal studies, and Aristotle and Theophrastus, as their most intimate friends every day. No one of these will not be at home. No one of these will fail to have his visitor leave more happy and more devoted to himself than when he came. No one of these will allow anyone to leave him with empty hands. All mortals can meet with them by night or by day. No one of these will force you to die, but all will teach you how to die. No one of these will wear out your years, but each will add his own years to yours. Conversations with no one of these will bring you peril. The friendship of none will endanger your life. The courting of none will tax your purse. From them you will take whatever you wish. It will be no fault of theirs if you do not draw the utmost that you can desire. What happiness, what a fair old age awaits him who has offered himself as a client to these. He will have friends from whom he may seek counsel on matters great and small, whom he may consult every day about himself, from whom he may hear truth without insult, praise without flattery, and after whose likeness he may fashion himself. We are wont to say that it was not in our power to choose the parents who fell to our lot, that they have been given to men by chance, yet we may be the sons of whomsoever we will. Households there are of noblest intellects. Choose the one into which you wish to be adopted. You will inherit not merely their name, but even their property, which there will be no need to guard in a mean or niggardly spirit. The more persons you share it with, the greater it will become. 
These will open to you the path to immortality and will raise you to a height from which no one is cast down. This is the only way of prolonging mortality, nay, of turning it into immortality. Honors, monuments, all that ambition has commanded by decrees or reared in works of stone, quickly sink to ruin. There is nothing that the lapse of time does not tear down and remove. But the works which philosophy has consecrated cannot be harmed. No age will destroy them, no age reduce them. The following and each succeeding age will but increase the reverence for them. Since envy works upon what is close at hand, and things that are far off, we are more free to admire. The life of the philosopher, therefore, has wide range, and he is not confined by the same bounds that shut others in. He alone is freed from the limitations of the human race. All ages serve him as if a god. Has some time passed by? This he embraces by recollection. Is time present? This he uses. Is it still to come? Listen, he anticipates. He makes his life long by combining all times into one.